Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest this week is a columnist who grew up in Ipswich and after various jobs in Britain and overseas embarked upon an academic and later a journalistic career. She has written for a range of publications, Marxism Today, The Mail on Sunday, The Daily Mail, The Independent, The Daily Telegraph and The Guardian. She is a feminist, once ambassadored by Jermaine Greer for her big hair and fuck me shoes, and a single mother who has had three daughters in three different decades. She stood as an independent candidate for the constituency of Hackney North and Stoke Newington in the 2010 UK general election, and was the winner of the Orwell Prize for Journalism in 2019. More recently, she's made waves for her decision to depart ways with The Guardian, a publication she had written columns for for decades. That came following criticism of her writing on trans issues. Reflecting on her decision to leave the paper, she said, The personal becomes political at the moment you never feel clean enough. I was always somewhat inappropriate there. My guest today is Suzanne Moore. So thank you very much for joining us today. We're delighted to have you socially distanced, but in the Spectator office. On this podcast, to begin with, we ask everyone the same question. Some have said it's a leading question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? No. I think it was it was quite fragmented. Uh, my mother got married and divorced many times and I think I think she was of a generation of women who were trying to find some sort of freedom through getting different men and it didn't work out but I had um I don't have bad feelings towards her I think I think she did the best she could in the circumstances she was in but no it wasn't happy a lot of the time but when I told her that she told me it was so that's quite difficult to deal with (laughs) she set the record straight yes (laughs) which tells you something doesn't it (laughs) now as I mentioned in the introduction you grew up in Ipswich you have an American father you mentioned your mother you attended Northgate Grammar School for Girls and you previously said of that experience it was absolutely the kind of school that everyone wants their children to go to now but horrible awful living hell Um, can you talk us through why it was living hell well because I came from a a working class background when I passed my 11 plus which I didn't even know was the 11 plus they didn't tell us other people seemed to get presents whereas my mum and my nana, my grandma, were just really annoyed with me because it meant that I had to have a uniform that they couldn't afford. So off I went to this school. And it, it was based on, I suppose, you know, these very traditional ideas. It had quads. I did Latin. The boys' school was next door. We weren't allowed to talk to boys and all that sort of thing. Look, it is the kind of grammar school education that people hanker for we did a lot of Shakespeare I did I did Latin as I said because science was my thing actually I loved biology I was sort of in love with my biology teacher even though I, I loved her uh, I loved dissecting things I loved cutting up things it was my favorite thing so I had to do Latin because I was doing biology uh, biology physics chemistry but it was you know I, it was the 70s and um I didn't want to sing hymns. I didn't want to sing the national anthem. I didn't want to be part of what 
they wanted me to be. I didn't even understand what they wanted me to be, actually, coming from where I came from. So I was really, really rebellious. And I just stopped going to school after I was about 14, really. Um, That was that. And I was obviously very annoying, a very irritating person for the other pupils because uh, I never did any work, but I loved doing exams. And that tells you something about being a journalist, doesn't it? Because it's like, just get it all in at the last minute, you know. Cramming. Yeah. So other girls would be you know, being sick and ill with nerves. And I'd be, I hadn't gone to school for about four months and just come in and blast my way through an exam. So, Were you the type of person who would finish the exam paper early or would you stay to the end? Because there's, there's two types of people. There's people who don't revise and then there's this, I find awful people who get up after like, half or two thirds the time no I think I, I think I stayed and I think I think I was up you know the night before and but just cram it all in as I said it was only later on when I you know, many 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 years later on when I realized that I functioned very well with, with deadlines that I made that connection and um, did you have any early ambitions when you were at school you mentioned your love of biology so were you thinking of science or journalism or no I didn't know what journalism was I <laughs> I can't, they're so, you know, when I say that they're so crazy now, I thought I could probably, should probably be an astronaut because I was absolutely fascinated with the moon landings. How that fitted into things, I don't really know because like, I don't even actually like flying very much, but I thought I should probably, could be an astronaut. Yeah. Again, you know, I no, no, no clue about it. Um, when I finally did... Uh, I, yeah, I was 16 when I left school and I, they said, because they said I had to go somewhere or, or something and I just sort of said, no, I'm, not, I'm just I'm sorry, I'm not doing that, I'm just, I'm just going, you know, I'm just leaving. And and they, they said, oh, we had you lined up for um, Cambridge and I was like, well, I've already been there. <laughs> I, I, because I didn't have any idea what that even meant. You see, I didn't come from a family that knew about university. So I, well, I, I've been to a gig at Cambridge. I mean, for God's sake, who hasn't, you know? Uh, and then... I remember my headmistress saying to me, what on earth do you think that is, is going to become of you? And I said, I don't know. I'll probably be the prime minister or something like that. And again, I, mean, it was comple- I was completely without uh, any idea that, of, of what these jobs entailed. But I just knew that I wasn't going to fit into uh, what they wanted. Yeah. And and also it was, you know, I'd, be, I'd been to the careers advice officer and um, that was pointless it was pointless absolutely pointless because the things the jobs for girls were they weren't jobs that I'd even be any any good at you know so you finished school at 16 mm. you leave home at 17 kind of yeah well I'd left really before I'd run yeah I'd, I'd gone yeah. yeah I mean which which again you know would be hard for someone to do now just because it's financially impossible but you could get jobs then and you spent I've got in my research you spend the next seven years traveling working different jobs I've got a real range here um selling encyclopedias in New Orleans social worker in London audiology technician later New York thinking about being a psychoanalyst um do you think you for listeners could give us a brief roundup of those seven years highlights lowlights (laughs) yeah well amazingly um well, that, the first job I got was I was a trainee audiology technician at the hospital in, in the Ipswich. I had been on the dole, but my mum said I had to get a job. I wore a white coat, so people 
call me doctor it was amazing I was just 16 and I spent most of my time off my head on drugs so that was just unbelievable that I had this job anyway I did uh but but I was determined that I was going to leave Ipswich as soon as I discovered that you could stick your thumb out and hitchhike anywhere I was in London you know then I worked with children in care I worked with children who we would now recognize as having autism but we didn't really have the the language about that that we have now I've worked with adults with learning disability I saved up money and then I went to the states again naively I thought I mustn't go to New York because that's really really dangerous so I went to Miami which was like really dangerous because there were there were riots and all sorts of things um I was a waitress in a Jewish restaurant I told I, I told him I was Jewish and um Everybody started speaking Yiddish to me, and obviously I couldn't understand it. So. Did you have to fess up? Well, they just—they just—they did say—they did say you are the worst waitress we've ever seen, but you know you have the chutzpah sort of to to carry it off. So it was that was good. Yeah, I just did all sorts of jobs, and I don't have any. Yeah, I'm glad I did really because it, it's all kind of material for what you might write about later on I think and throughout this period were you having like a great social life were you out there having lots of fun yeah work work to play oh oh yeah I mean god I remember saying so clearly sometimes now during lockdown especially I remember saying to my friends one time do you know there are people that don't go out every night of the week and we both looked at each other and thought that's just so you know they're they're disgusting those people of course, no, no. I mean, I've, I've slowed no, down. Like the... saying, everyone agrees with a 10 p.m. curfew. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No, it went out nonstop, totally into my yeah you know, gigs, music, all of that. And but the other thing was, I mean, in the 80s as well in London. I mean, oh, in England, really. Politically, so much was going on that was also part of your social life. You know, whether it was the miners' strike or Greenham Common or. There was a there was a lot going on, and so you come back to the UK and you decide to do a psychology degree, yeah. um, and that's at Middlesex Polytechnic. So how does that come about? Do you think? Well, I yeah. Well, because I'd I'd worked a lot with children in care before I'd gone to the states. I I thought then, and I actually think now, still really, as I think most people do that. Really, the only interventions that you can make sometimes when people have had really uh, difficult lives are one-to-one. And otherwise, you're just sort of pushing them through a care system that is terrible for them, usually. And therefore, I should be a psychologist or a psychoanalyst. I wanted to be... And I'd lived in New York, and everybody seemed to talk about that. And so, yes, that's why I went for a degree in psychology. But I... Yeah, very quickly found that it had no politics, or it did have politics, but they weren't the sort of politics that I liked, and I was able to switch. To cultural studies. Yeah. Um, I feel that we often romanticise the university experience, but did you feel that topic actually did kind of change your worldview, you know, was it a a big experience in terms of what you were studying? I think, yeah, I... I don't think it's to romanticise it. I mean, because I was 24 when I went to college. And, I mean, I had a grant. I had somewhere to live. And I got pregnant in the second year and I had a baby. And I got... And I just was able to carry on going to college. It changed my life, not 
not just in material terms, but yes, in terms of how I was able to think about things. And I think I was really, really lucky to... People look down on cultural studies, media studies, deconstruction and all that stuff. But I can't, the, the, at the time I was there, I mean, I was, um, I mean, I had people like Stuart Hall would come in and teach, teach us. We had, you know, just fantastic tutors and people who were exploring all that post-structuralist theory for the first time themselves. So it was really buzzy, really interesting. And yeah, it, it informed everything I did since. Yeah, and you, know, you touched on politics at the time, but I was wondering if you could talk us through your student politics or what it was like in terms of protests, marches. Um, some of our guests, obviously, it's very much you know the politics of the Oxford Union. So, yeah. <laughs> talk us through what your kind of uh, experience was. Well, when I came back, I li- I'd lived in New York in in, in nineteen eighty one, so AIDS was happening, and obviously that was, you know both a sort of tragic but a kind of it was such it was in such it was such a tragedy that you you really felt you had to sort of step up to the plate there and um there was a great allyship between gay men and women who identified with the queer community not necessarily lesbians but you know we we all felt we had to do our bit really um and even you know good old diana actually changed that by uh, making sure that you know you could touch somebody with AIDS so there was activism around HIV there was act- activism around abortion rights which there that I'd always been in- involved in there was activism around of course Greenham Common and then coming up and then 1984 you know which some people will say was our last civil war was the miners strike so and then there were the smaller, less known things like Runwick and stuff. But but politics was really, I'm making it sound like, you know, everybody was on a protest all the time. Not necessarily, politics was kind of much more embedded because m- most people I knew lived in, lots of people lived in squats or were trying to uh, work out ways of alternative living and, and, and to defend ourselves really. I'm uh, against the Thatcherite kind of policies. I mean, I I remember coming back to to England and I had never seen people sleeping rough until Margaret Thatcher came into power. I had seen it in other countries, but I mean, there was a, there was a li- literally a moment where benefit was taken away from a, from from uh, younger people and they were suddenly sleeping rough. And so you you know you kind of lived lived the politics there was the sort of on the ground politics and at the same time I was studying very high theory you know and somehow trying to make 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 sense of it all I hope now for 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 young people I think they just do it in different ways you know with with different media but we had lots of small magazines and you know from city limits or women's review places or alternative spaces where people could start to to write and um, now you uh, decided to do a phd yeah. after you finished your degree on theories of pleasure yes um but you around that time were also considering journalism is that fair because you didn't complete it so was it a point where you thought is that when the penny dropped and you thought actually deadlines my <laughs> views <laughs> this is a career not exactly i mean i spent a good year in a library and i had a baby at the same time so it was it was quite lonely, actually, because just doing a PhD is lonely. Uh, just like, you know, writing a book is lonely. That's, that's the bit people don't really talk about, isn't it? And I 
started to feel frustrated, uh, uh, I guess, with the kind of academic language that, although I'd enjoyed it, that I had to write in. And the idea that there were all these incredible ideas and only like three people were going to read them. So I started to write little articles for things like New Society and stuff like that. And my then PhD supervisor said to me that I had, like, uh, she called me a a woman of too many distractions, (laughs) which I quite like that, actually, but I think it was not meant in a very nice way. And, um, And I had to kind of choose. And I had this, I know this, this sounds, this is, the most pretentious thing but I am going to say it (laughs) I'm going to say it but I thought but in France and Italy and all these those the European intellectuals they don't choose between academia and journalism they you know Umberto Eco writes for do you know what I mean I thought don't don't make me choose it's the same thing I'm just doing these ideas in a more populist way don't sort of make me do that and and actually do you know what I still think that there's this weird kind of rivalry between academics and journalists because you know, journalists are kind of jealous of academics because they just get all this time to really concentrate and do their thing. And then academics are really jealous of journalists because they get a bit of a name, you know. And it's it's, it's a straight... It, it surely should be sort of more knitted together. So so after after a year, I had... I'd started to publish stuff and, and teach as well. And I really, really liked the response I was getting from writing and um, and my grant was going to run out and I realised I was getting going to get some money from it and um, well, again my supervisor said did it, did it make any difference to me having a grant uh, which again shows you kind of what sort of world people live in if you know if they think it doesn't you know if they actually think it doesn't make a difference to you so yeah of course it made a difference to me it's what I lived on but I liked I I felt passionate about the ideas and I, and I liked getting them to people, you know? Now, you uh, get a job at Marxism Today? Yes. So, that was... Oh, God, who listens to this podcast? Um, I, I think you're worried about Marxism Today stuff. You might be okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. Well, I... Marxism Today at that point was an important magazine because the right kind of thought it represented the left. It was a magazine of the Communist Party, but it didn't represent the left. It represented a small part of the left. It had it had it had a huge it had much bigger influence really than people. You know, people gave it, gave it power somehow. Anyway, um, yeah, I went to edit the back half. Um, the cult, uh, I renamed it Culture, and I was the first person they'd employed who wasn't in the Communist Party, which was an issue. God, I mean, the interview... I mean, the interview for... The interviews for that job, I've never been interviewed like that before or since. So I'm talking about, like, three or four hours at a time. And I remember... Deep dive on your views. Oh, my God, yeah. And there was... I remember the one question that I really screwed up was... um, well, it was by the second interview where I was at now, actually, at the point where I just thought, I just don't even know if I want this job. I just can't cope, really. <laughs> I think Martin Jakes said to me, we lo- we sort of, we quite like you, but we're a bit worried about your commitment to the project. And I, and I, and I said, and I never heard anyone say that word. I said, oh, which, 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 well, like, which project, you know, what project? And he went, 
you know, the revolution. I went, oh, that one, I love that. That's my favourite project. <laughs> Thinking, oh, that's it, I've blown it. Anyway, I got the job. Because um, I'd never heard anyone say, call the revolution the project. But then, of course, then all you see... Uh, what was what was interesting about the people that were around Nazism today, who of course were the Millibands, Aronovich, Charlie Ledbetter, all those people went straight into the New Labour thing, and then they all started calling that the project. And um, it, it was it was a strange move to come out of the Communist Party into New Labour, in a certain way. In another way, it, it wasn't. But it, but it was it was an again it was an interesting time. I mean, it was just a kind of mad scene where you know. Half the time, the office would be full of sort of a delegation of trade unionists from sort of Finland, and then there'd be these very posh old ladies who would come in and they had a bust of Lenin in the basement, and they'd just come in to clean it. <laughs> it was just kind of wow. This is this is, and then and then and the other thing was, of course, the Communist Party was so split. So you'd phone up people. Well, I would phone. I mean, I. That was the other thing. I had the I had the kind of uh, naivety of not really knowing who was in the Communist Party or not. So I'd phone up certain people. They just start screaming at me down the phone because you know for them when the tanks rolled into you know Czechoslovakia or wherever that was a good day, right? And so, and so we horrible Euro communists were bad. But I mean, I I got Angela Carter to write. I got David Hockney. I, you know, I could just phone up anybody and, and get them to write, and we never paid a penny. And so, it was, it was, yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was an inter- an interesting thing. And they were trying to, and because of Stuart Hall and B. Campbell and those people, they were trying to understand why, instead of just being anti-Thatcher, but why Thatcher appealed, which the left has to understand that, and still, and still is having difficulty with those arguments but Marxism today did have them and you become a film critic for the New Statesman yes and at that point I mean at what point do you start working for the Guardian in this oh well yeah then I got the film critic job that was great actually when anyone asked me advice about writing I mean just that regular gig the rhythm of doing something every week is fantastic and obviously I was trying to write about more than just the film that I'd seen that week. But it was it's still, I think, one of my, the best. I look back at those days and I, I loved, I love, I love film. And uh, it's a great, great job. It's a great spot. It, it really is a great job. And I then got offered, I think, oh God, I can't remember. Then I got offered a column at The Independent. And then, you know, that thing happens in newspapers where one wants you and then the other one wants you. So then The Guardian did and then I went there and then um, and then I went back to The Independent because Andrew Marr poached me. <laughs> How did the poaching take place? Did he uh, invite you to lunch or...? Yes, in that restaurant where, what's it called? Uh, uh, the Quidnita? Where, where Tony Blair and... Gordon Brown did the pact. He he took me to lunch there. He didn't know what to say to me. He's quite shy, Andy, actually. I mean, I, I, I love him, but he's quite shy. I feel like he'd be quite an intimidating person to take to lunch. <laughs> he, he would. No, you would. <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 I just mean as in, like, for if they're trying to work out how to woo you to their publication. I know. Towards the end, when I was trying to leave, when I was trying to resign to him, he, he, he fell apart completely. I, you know, Because it was all going wrong. No, he wooed me with the idea, which I now think is hilarious, but it absolutely worked, that we would have no news on the front page. 
and just lovely pictures. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. I feel it's quite in vogue now. Maybe <laughs> yeah, ahead of I maybe know. ahead of his time. So I and I actually did really love working at the Independent. I really liked the fact that it was neither left nor right. I I really that's probably was my favourite newspaper as it was then. Yeah, yeah, I did like it. When you do get to the Guardian, I enjoyed your description of life at the Guardian obviously not the whole time you said um, you grew bored hearing conversations about cricket and having various guys yell the name of Oxford colleges that you hadn't been to um, telling them that I had been to Polytechnic was information some of them basically couldn't compute yeah yeah but they just yeah was that consistent when you were doing various media jobs or was it particularly acute there was it cute at the Guardian or going to anything at the BBC yeah yeah, like I, I can't remember who it was. Kept saying, "So was it this college or that?" And I kept saying, "No, it was Middlesex Poly." And then he said to me, "Ah, oh, Polytechnic, that's extraordinary." And I said, "Well, not that extraordinary." He said, "That must be where you get these views." And I thought, "Well, they can't be that weird, can they? Because otherwise, you wouldn't be employing me." I mean, yeah, it was like that, but. But it was all the, you know, in conference, who's first to bat? And I just thought, oh, for God's sakes, I can't, I can't stand it. I mean, I still can't stand it. I mean, I've got nothing against cricket, but, you know, it's just, it's just kind of a, a way of excluding people who haven't, you know, grown up on the, the playing fields of public school and stuff. So. I want to talk about, obviously, what happened at The Guardian more recently, but I just wondered, I suppose, looking back on your journalism career, a, any piece you most, uh, not to sound too much world, but <laughs> any piece you're the most proud of looking back, but two, also just any disaster days just to make everyone feel better about their own lives. There was obviously the Jermaine Greer. Yeah, that was, um, that was. Incident. That was bad. Um, that was horrible, actually, because I, um, to me, it came out of nowhere. I'd been doing a TV thing with her. I think Jermaine... Do you know, I'm just not going to say anything bad about Jermaine because she's, she's Jermaine Greer, right? And, and she needed some, some publicity and it doesn't matter whether she chose to slag me off or not because she wrote The Female Eunuch. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty horrible. It was pretty horrible at the time. And, um, yeah. Um, but it was also a bit like your mum saying, don't go out dressed like that. It's never good. It's never very good for older women to attack younger women, whatever, even if they're right, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm very aware of I've got three daughters, and I'm very aware that it always looks bad. Your job, your job as an older, if you believe in, you know, if you're a feminist, and your job is to be happy that younger women are coming up, not to be threatened by them, you know. Yeah. I really do think that that's how we have to be. Um. You ran for a, a career in politics briefly. Oh, that, oh, that I know. No one ever understood that. That was a kind of joke, but, oh, my God. Um, I just thought it was just one of those, like, sometimes I think... 2010. You just, you've got to do, you know, things come into my mind, and I think I should just do it for the experience. I was very frustrated then. Well, I still am. Surely everybody is by the two-party system, by the absolute lack of choice. I live in a constituency in, in which my vote makes no difference whatsoever. That's 
the same for most people. Such a safe seat for Labour. Yeah, yeah, totally yeah. safe seat. Was never conceived as a, a anything against uh, Diane Abbott. Actually, it was just I wanted to see. Well, so the idea, you know, the basic idea of democracy is really anyone can do it, and you could you could just do it. You need five hundred pounds for a deposit and an agent, and you could just do it. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to do that then. And it, so it was just me and some mates. And then I had a cup, some badges and some leaflets and would just stand in the street. And then people would say things like, what are you going to do about Afghanistan or all the parking? And I had like no answers to any of the questions because I realised that most of what people ask their MPs to do is local council business, like, you know, get, you know, sort out the rubbish. Or really weird, like their personal sort of bugbears. So some, some a man would come up to me in the park and say, "Assisted suicide for or against?" And I'd say, "Oh yeah." Um, he said, "Because I'm only going to vote for you if it's forced." I said, "Oh no, I'm for I'm, I'm for that then." And it, it was just completely ridiculous. <laughs> I wasn't going to, you know, going to legalise all drugs. Yes, all of them. When? Oh, as soon as I get in. I mean, you know, the the things that people ask you, um, but mostly uh, people are really concerned about local issues and they think that that's what their local MP can do for them and that's really council business but I, I did it look I had no money I had 500 pounds that was that I had no staff I wasn't in a party and it made me it, the experience of it made me see that actually that year quite a lot of people did run as independents that it's almost impossible yeah. to change the party system but because so few independents ever get in and I, there's that that guy. Uh, he was he was running on an NHS thing. I can't remember his name. Um, but but you know you need party machinery. Uh, you need money. Um, and actually, weirdly, some Labour people who didn't like Diana but came and told me how much money exactly it would cost to to beat her. Uh, not this isn't to do with me, yeah. me and my, my my personality or anything like that. This is to do with how they work it out. Like if you had that much money, you could possibly you know um, take somebody on. And it's you know it was my little stand against the system, but it was completely you know. And then of course I never was going to win. And also, I mean it would have been a. A total disaster if I had because I don't even like going to meetings. I mean, I mean, none of it would. It was just what? Well, how does it work then? If you think I want to represent people, and and also I had over the years and uh, during the at various times been taken out by Labour people and had these very weird, vague conversations where they sort of said, "Have you ever considered?" This is probably when I had a column at The Guardian. Have you ever considered standing? And I'd say, no, I don't think so, really. And they'd say, well, you know, we could help you. And and they, and they were talking about really safe seats, but there were places I'd never even been. And I'd say, well, how could I represent somewhere yeah. you know, that I've never even been? And, you know, that also strikes me as a kind of very bad way to... to to do politics. Yeah, and I, I think we have seen also even more recently when even high-profile politicians leave their party and then try and stand independent. Yeah. I mean, we can quibble with their reasons for doing it, but even that level of name recognition as a politician doesn't really work when you're an independent candidate. No, I mean, it's I don't know what would make it work unless you could get enough... 
I mean, I think then you almost sort of get into that kind of celebrity kind of style of politics. I, uh, but I would, obviously, I'd like to see the end of the two-party system somehow. Did Diane Abbott offer you any commiserations when you came sick? <laughs> no, Diane was not best pleased with me in any shape or form. Um, now, uh, you won the Oral Prize for Journalism in 2019. Mm. Are you somebody who cares particularly about awards? Or I cared about that. That Yes, yeah, definitely. And now I, I cared about that. I mean, I, I wouldn't be so blase. That I think that's the one you you do want to win. Yeah, I did care, and you know, I also sort of like the work they do. And that year, Anna Burns won for uh, her novels. So I guess I just enjoyed the whole thing. I really did like it. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about Guardian to this day which I know you've spoken about and you wrote a spectator diary on at the time Uh, (laughs) uh, so a bit about the spectators later Um, but I suppose for listeners who have not been following this closely um, I mentioned the introduction but ultimately you uh, recently I don't know I've lost all sense of time in lockdown uh, but we'll call it uh, recently left the Guardian and I suppose it'd be interesting to hear you describe I suppose the sequence of events um but oh it seems to uh i suppose center around in march 2020 a publication of an opinion piece written by yourself titled women must have the right to organize will not be silenced which quite quickly uh, had a backlash uh, you had uh, a letter published in the guardian 338 people signing it um rejecting your alleged implication that advocating for trans rights poses a threat to cisgender women i was just uh, from your perspective, I suppose, how did it feel when this process was going? Was was it something that had already been an issue before this piece? Well, I'd wanted to write about this subject for some time and clearly um, I was... They didn't want to go near it. So I wrote the column that caused the fuss was actually based on um, Selena Todd, who's a professor of history at Oxford, being... I mean, she's having to walk around the campus with security guards and stuff because she'd attended a meeting of a woman's place, which is basically an organisation of women who want to protect our legal rights based on sex. And some trans activists had been very much agitating to just say that sex is a construct like gender. Um, and we we don't need it. And this, I suppose, had come to a head in the elect. It come it becomes such an issue partly because Labour had made all its leadership candidates say that they would sign up to this, making organisations like a woman's place hate hate groups. So it, it for me it was never it's never it, about. I mean, whatever I say, you know, I will be called transphobic I'm not transphobic I have no issue whatsoever with people being trans but I do have my issues are two really they're quite simple is that women need the power to organize and define themselves their own language and they may may require separate spaces whether that's in prisons refuges or for sports and also I had because of well for two reasons partly because I was at the Guardian and partly because I did two years as, as a training as a therapist while I was at the Guardian and I was hearing from people that stuff was going on at the Tavistock at the gender identity dysphoria service 
that they were very uncomfortable with. And and it was mainly to do with this uptick in young girls wanting to transition. Often well, something like a third of them possibly autistic, self-harming, eating disorder, all the stuff that, you know, distressed young women. And the, for some of them, clearly the answer may, may be to a gender issue, but for some... It isn't, and so there were lots. There were lots of reasons why I wanted to write about it, and I actually think what I wrote was pretty mild. But then there was a letter that was leaked to BuzzFeed, and it was three hundred and thirty-eight people uh, talking about transphobia at the Guardian, and they didn't mention my name, mm. but it was sort of linked to me, uh, and it felt very uh, uncomfortable at the, that time. Uh, but this just ha- that happened and I almost didn't react to it I just carried on because it was just the beginning of lockdown yeah so I just carried on as normal but the longer I had to think about it the more I just thought you know the editor should have made a statement and defended me because everybody lots of people within the paper did defend me uh, I had loads of private support but in public it wasn't seen you know so I just felt I'd been treated really badly. And then at that point, did you decide that you just didn't feel your position continuing to contribute to the paper was tenable? Well, they didn't want me to leave. I mean, I chose to go because I think they knew it would look pretty bad for me to go. But I also felt that I I can't really work somewhere where I can't, at this stage, I'm too old and I'm too kind of stubborn, I guess. But I don't want to be sort of told what to write and what not to say I mean I I actually and also I could feel the tremendous support every day and still do from I get emails every day from people who who don't have a voice like me I mean they're a teaching assistant in the school and some five-year-old little boy has put on a dress and people are wondering should he be taken off you know somewhere and to a clinic and you just think they don't think so but you know it's it's a whole kind of it's a really complicated area and it's really not about trying to discriminate against trans people in any way they they need much better health care and everything but it is how do we protect the rights of women and it to be honest right from the beginning of all this I've thought that this this isn't some sort of irresolvable issue actually I think if we can talk about it we could really sort something out I don't see it as sort of it's become incredibly incendiary but I think it you know we we're basically on the same side and we could sort it out and I think I suppose looking at things from a freedom of speech angle mm. is interesting and in there seems to obviously if you look across the pond to American publications, mm. you know, of, of range, it can sometimes feel that there's a trend towards, I suppose, left leaning publications, publications more focused on the left, seem to be having lots of these internal dialogues about freedom of speech. And I was wondering, I suppose two things. As first is just do you feel that your generation see freedom of speech differently? than I suppose my general you know mm, like mm, younger people in offices mm, today mm. um and do you think is it strange to me freedom of speech has almost become something on the right yeah it's really it's often spoken about in this generational way isn't it now I'm not quite I'm not completely convinced that it is only generational but I can see that yeah. uh, I can see that a lot of it is 
because, well, you know, if we're talking about the States, there's this kind of uptake from campus culture about trigger warnings and microaggressions and not all of that. But but I think that's only really, you know, a small part of what goes on in any sort of uh, university. But it's painful for me to say that, you know, the right will let you say what you want and the left won't. But actually, that's not a new experience for me. It was the same when I worked at Marxism Today. I mean, God, I mean, the, the, you know, literally the rows people would have over a comma, you know. I mean, uh, the left has a, a sort of puritanical tendency within it. It always has had. And at the moment, it's in a really bad place because I, I think that my, my, my argument to the Guardians, particularly on this trans issue and certainly around anti-Semitism where we saw it again, is if you don't confront these things, if you don't have these arguments and let people actually speak about them, then of course the right will have them, take them and will not necessarily, you won't end up where you want. So I think it's, there's something, there's, a kind of tick box orthodoxy now uh, on on the left on certain things and it's starting to fall apart actually I, I think it's starting to fall apart because what happens is people get so preoccupied in the small tick box you know am I anti-colonialist am I anti-sexist am I all this that they miss the really big things that have been happening in this country because actually something like Brexit was a form of identity politics. It was just one that the left wouldn't recognise, you know. And and so I, I do think that, yeah, it's it's like any sort of shrink would say, it's better to talk about these things because they will come back and and get you. And I'm presuming you still read The Guardian. <laughs> I read everything. I, it's, it's, it's funny, though, being away from it because you it just comes into it... Uh, you just get it into perspective, you know. It's just, it's it's one, it has some excellent writers and some really great stuff and I'm really happy to read parts of it, of course, yeah. I've just got two final questions. Um, we're nearly done, I promise. The first was just, if someone had told you 20 years ago you'd be a Telegraph columnist and doing a spectator <laughs> podcast, would you be surprised? Or <laughs> I guess, I don't know, actually, because I had my little, I went to the mail on Sunday, yeah. so I have met, people who you know are not left-wing before yeah but yeah I am um yeah I guess I yeah do you know what I'd be surprised about Katie to be honest is I'd be surprised I've I'm still a journalist and I've got a job because I've always kind of regarded it as something that would do for six months you know and I'm pleasantly surprised really pleasant really <laughs> no, really pleasantly surprised I that constantly too. but I think that's no you know I don't think that's a bad way to be you know I don't don't take it for granted but no that's good and then the final thing I just want to ask you thank you very much for giving us your time today is just a question we ask everyone at start and end the same way which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given and you can have accepted the advice you can have ignored <laughs> it it's up to you <laughs> oh god um Oh, I've been given lots of really terrible advice, especially about how to look after children, I think. But but no, um, when I was stroppy, to, uh, st- when I was a stroppy teenager, actually, I think I still am a stroppy teenager, but um, the careers uh, officer came and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, uh, you know, I want to travel. And she said, I should be an air hostess. Um, and that was the only job that she could think of 
And I mean, I I can't. Can you imagine? I mean, it would have been a night a nightmare, not just for me. I don't even like flying. I mean, I don't like going places. I mean, it would have just been me sort of bumbling around, sloshing drinks over people and being rude. It would, you know, I mean, so not cut out to be an air hostess. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.